1: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, Florida Republicans try to cancel Disney as a Michigan Democrat teaches her party how to win the culture wars. Dr. Bob Walker joins to talk about the fate of the federal mask mandate and more. And later, it's time for another round of Take Appreciator Saki Deucey Edition. <laughs> <laughs> But first, check out the latest Take Line, where Jason talks to Salt Lake Tribune journalist Andy Larson about the Jazz's Game 1 win, and Sports Illustrated journalist Chris Mannix about the Celts' Net series. Also this week on Stuck with Damon Young, Damon is talking all about money. He's joined by Samantha Irby and Mirsa Baradaran to unpack all the ways we discuss and don't discuss money in society. Listen to all episodes of Stuck with Damon Young for free, only on Spotify. Also... Got to have you guys sign up for Vote Save America. We're trying to get 40,000 by the end of May so that we can be ready for November. It is votesaveamerica.com slash midterms. You can go. You can pick a region. I'm uh, I'm in the western region. That's my region. Dan, what are you? You're southeast? You, you love Florida. That's why you have the south. I w-
2: I'm in the south because I go where Stacey Abrams tells me to go, and so I pick okay, the south. yeah.
1: Yeah, you tried to you tried to trade Florida to love it but I am, it didn't work.
2: I am I I I stand by that decision and the the ensuing podcast will show why. All
1: slash right, votesaveamerica.com/midterms. All right, let's get to the news. As you know, the Republican Party's new kink is using the power of the state to punish private sector businesses just for the crime of expressing different political beliefs. On Thursday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill into law to cancel a 50-year-old economic deal with Disney, the state's largest employer and most beloved brand, over the company's criticism of a law that targets gay and trans kids.
3: I think as many of you know, the Florida legislature is meeting this week uh, to consider the congressional reapportionment plan for Florida for the next 10 years, uh, and that is what they've been called upon to do, but I am announcing today that we are expanding the call of what they are going to be considering this week, and so yes, they will be considering the congressional map, but they also will be considering termination of all special districts that were enacted in Florida prior to 1968, and that includes
0: the Reedy Creek Improvement District.
1: Dan, would you like to weigh in on the wisdom of Ron DeSantis and Florida Republicans trying to cancel Disney? Can we first weigh in on just
2: how lame a messenger Ron DeSantis is?
1: Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's trying to be Trump, but he's really not. Uh, that's, that's, that's not Trump. That's a, that's a cheap imitation.
2: That is like, he would struggle to get a job as a public access news anchor. Like that is just really, I mean, he really leaned into the Reedy Creek district, whatever at the end. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's good messaging. Everyone, everyone, everyone was clear about what that was all about. Yeah, I mean,
2: I, people in all sorts of MAGA diners are talking about the Reedy Creek thing. It is dominating conversations. Just ask any New York Times reporter. No, I think in all seriousness, I think that this is, it's sort of wild that, Ron DeSantis, who's up for re-election this year, a bunch of Florida state legislators who are up for re-election this year and plan to make their entire political career in Florida are waging war with one of America's most respected companies and one of the largest employers in all of Florida. And the thing that is so fucking alarming about that is it's good politics for them. That is the thing. That it is they're in a normal world, forever and ever and ever, politicians would cater to the largest employers in their state. So their state's largest industries. That's usually a bad thing nationally. It's why New Jersey senators for a long time were were overly sympathetic to the pharmaceutical companies based in New Jersey. People from Delaware are overly sympathetic to the credit card companies based in Delaware and on and on and on and on. But here in Florida, they're taking on Disney. And I think it says something that is worth Democrats sort of understanding, which is it's sort of proof positive that all politics are national now, that – the benefits of good coverage from Fox, of adulation from national right-wing media figures outweighs the risk of like a negative editorial from the Orlando Sentinel or some local stakeholder or chamber of commerce person saying something negative about you or weighing it against you. And I think that, I think, speaks to so much of what is driving American politics now is happening right here in Florida. And I think the second point is That we have to understand this not as a fight against a corporation, but as a fight against change, right? These are Republicans who are in the death throes of a battle against the inexorable tide of cultural change, where the country is becoming more tolerant, more progressive, and they are trying to fight to, quote unquote, make America great again, or make America less tolerant again, or go back to a period of time that was different. And Disney plays an important role in that because it's so intertwined in our cultural fabric.
1: So I'm trying to figure out if it is good politics for them. Like it is unquestionably good politics with the, the MAGA base, right? Because everything is <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 a, that a Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis says, right? But like, I don't know. I know that the polling about the bill itself is mixed, partly because it depends on how you word it and and what you include in the poll question. So it's sort of a complicated issue. But, like, the idea that now the government is going to punish private sector businesses for holding political beliefs that the Republican Party doesn't agree with uh, seems... Like a bridge too far. Like it might have been a bit of an overreach for a lot of people. I don't know.
2: Well, that is correct. But someone has to make that argument. Nothing is inherently good or bad politics. It is just how the argument plays itself out and which arguments are made and which arguments are heard. And one of the reasons why the polling has been mixed on this bill is there are not enough people with loud enough voices making the right argument against it. And so that that is the issue. Like, yeah, like this is an opportunity for Democrats. I don't know. I'm not necessarily saying it's an opportunity. It means that we're going to all of a sudden defeat Ron DeSantis or a bunch of these legislators in gerrymandered districts. But there is an argument to be made here, but not enough people are making the argument.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, Florida Republicans voted against banning all sex education for kids in kindergarten through third grade. And instead decided to pass a law that specifically bans discussion about sexual identity so that a teacher can be sued for merely answering a question about a student's gay parents. And now, because a company said that they disagree with that law, their government has threatened to punish them in a way that raises people's taxes potentially. <laughs> like, none of that seems very popular. <laughs> but you're right, you have to make people have to make that argument as opposed to just being like, run DeSantis, what he did is bad and crazy and who cares? Like that, You have to really actually make the argument about why it's bad. And there's a lot to work with. I just want to say there's a lot to work with.
2: (laughs) I mean, it's also worth noting that when we say Disney said they didn't support the law, that's giving them a lot more
1: credit than they deserve. They put out a fucking statement. Under pressure, right? (laughs) Under pressure, right. Yeah, no.
2: What happened here is Disney's new CEO and their new head of public affairs, who's this like, old Washington hand who sort of like hung around at bipartisan salons and parties when he worked in DC, completely misunderstood who the Republican Party was. So they tried to take no stance, thinking that that would appease the Republicans. They then took a half-hearted stance against the bill. And now the Republicans want to cancel them, literally putting the cancel and cancel culture. I mean, I think there is a lesson for corporations out there, which is which, Facebook should have learned this lesson, Disney's learning this lesson, hell, the New York Times should have learned this lesson a long time ago, is appeasement is a strategy doomed to fail when you're dealing with a bunch of bad faith people.
1: But also, I mean, there's something dangerous here, which is Ron DeSantis and Republicans are basically sending a message to all private businesses, which is like, you disagree with the ruling party, and you will be punished. And that is, you know, that's getting to be sort of authoritarian shit right there. Because <laughs> like, it's, today it's a message for businesses. Tomorrow it's a message for individuals. Like you, if you're on the side of a political issue from the ruling party and you put out a statement, uh, just a statement saying you disagree with us, there will be retribution. And I don't think a lot of people want to live in that country. I actually would say the majority of Americans don't want to live in that country.
2: And if you're on the side of kids and teachers and parents, the Republicans will come after you.
1: That's what this is. Right. And just in case any of you are wondering if Ted Cruz would weigh in on this, um, fear not. Here's a clip.
4: I think there are people who are misguided trying to drive, you know, Disney stepping in saying, you know, in every episode now they're going to have, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, Mickey and Pluto going
0: at it like, (laughs) really? Thank you for that image, Senator. You know, that but it's just of... like,
4: come on, guys! Like, like these are kids, and and you know, y- you could always shift to Cinemax if you want that.
1: What kind of uh, what kind of Cinemax is Ted Cruz getting? <laughs> <laughs> there's there's uh, Mickey and uh, Pluto. What's going on there?
2: <laughs> I mean, I, I... Ted Cruz. If like once again, if we had our Fox News that would do Fox News style headlines, it would be Ted Cruz reveals preference for animated mouse on dog porn.
1: Ted Cruz famous for liking uh, a tweet that showed porn. (laughs) Um, I guess it was guess it was his staffer. Sorry. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, sure it was. Sure it was. Yeah. I just, I read the, I read the, I read the tweet for the articles. <laughs> Ted
2: Cruz does have an amazing ability to take whatever the argument is and then do it in the dumbest, least appealing, least persuasive form humanly possible.
1: Yeah, which is very clippable. That's why Ted Cruz gets a lot of airtime here. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> well, we probably all win with that agreement.
1: But again, it's, it's, it's back to what we are just talking about with DeSantis that like. You know first of all, none of that's happening with Disney movies. Second of all, if a Disney movie is showing something that you don't want to show your kids, don't fucking watch it it's a free country <laughs> like the this is This is such Republican overreach and that they have now decided they don't want to just you know fuck with public sector stuff. They actually want to go in and think that the government's job is to tell the private sector to tell parents to tell doctors to tell everyone. What to do with their lives? How to live their lives? Who to love? Who to marry? Who to be? This is what the Republican Party is now. This is the party of limited government and personal freedom. This is where they are now. This is where this is where they this is where they've moved.
2: There is freedom of speech as long as you say what we want you to say.
1: Right? Yeah, It's bullshit argument. Freedom of speech. They don't. They're not for freedom of speech. They're for making sure that you believe what Republicans believe. Um, All right. We've talked a lot about how Democrats should respond to these Republican culture wars. Uh, And this week, Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow showed us how it's done. After a Republican colleague sent out a fundraising email accusing her of being a troll who wants to groom kindergartners and teach that eight year olds are responsible for slavery. She gave an impassioned five minute speech that has now been viewed millions and millions of times. Here's a clip.
5: I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd district had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children in an email fundraising for herself. So I sat on it for a while wondering why me. And then I realized, because I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme, because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights, if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer, she supports pedophilia, she wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. My mom taught me at a very young age that Christianity and faith was about being part of a community, about recognizing our privilege and blessings and doing what we can to be of service to others, especially people who are marginalized, targeted, and who had less often unfairly. I learned that service was far more important than performative nonsense like being seen in the same pew every Sunday or writing Christian in your Twitter bio and using that as a shield to target and marginalize already marginalized people.
1: Dan, why do you think the speech went viral and uh, what, if anything, can Democrats learn from it? I think it went viral because
2: it's something that we have not heard enough, which is authentic, moral outrage at morally outrageous conduct and rhetoric. Like what the Republicans are doing.
1: You, th- you think we've been short on moral outrage?
2: <laughs> I think we we have been short on, on authentic moral outrage from Democratic politicians, for sure.
1: Yeah, from politicians. Yes.
2: I mean, look, I'm not saying that there's not a, uh, we are not wash in moral outrage on Twitter. But among the people that we have sent to Washington and to state capitals and elsewhere to fight back against the people doing this morally outrageous conduct, you don't hear it enough. Like we, like there is, and this was, it was authentic. It used her by her biography and her values as a way to push back on it. And I, it does connect and other people have drawn this, this connection, but it does connect with the Senator Brian chat speech about Josh Hawley is what Republicans are doing is so cruel and so disgusting and so dangerous and so dishonest that, you have to call it out for what it is and you have to do it with equal amounts of passion that they bring. You have to do it. You have to do it with as much passion as they bring cynicism to it. And we I think we need to see more of it and more politicians doing it in, in a way that is that I think feels to the listener and to the audience and to Democrats to, and to Democrats equivalent to the threat we are facing, if that makes sense, equivalent to the conduct that we are trying to combat.
1: So I think that the most important ingredient in that speech is exactly what you point out. She called out the bullshit, she hit back, and she hit back with passion. I think that is, that is how you get noticed. That is how you get people's attention. That is how you um, make sure that you are drawing on something that people feel in their gut about this moment, particularly Democrats and liberals. I also saw a number of people on Twitter. I was tweeted the speech like everyone else did. And a bunch of people said, um, you know, I'm more conservative and I still found that speech very persuasive. And I do think that there is a way to direct that kind of passion because I think, you know, i made a joke about the moral outrage, but we haven't seen enough of it from Democratic politicians, but we hear it all the time from people, moral outrage. And I think figuring out exactly how to direct it is important. You mentioned her identity she talked she said a few times in that speech, I am a straight white christian suburban mom. Part of what I think what she was trying to do is she refused to let republicans own being christian or being moms or being suburbanites, right? She happens to identify all of those things, but she redefined why you can be all of those things and still be a progressive. She talked about universal values that the vast majority of people in this country should hold, right? She talked about we want to. She wants to raise her daughter to be curious, empathetic, and kind. Uh, and she th- she talked about how children. We want our children to feel seen and heard and supported and not targeted and marginalized. And that is a feeling that every parent who has children wants for their child. That is just that is more universal than what you might hear from any one party. And then she did something that. Um, Anat Chanker Osorio and Heather McGee and everyone who believes in sort of the race class narrative has tried to tell Democrats to do, which is at one point towards the end of the speech, she says people who are different are not the reason that our roads are in bad shape or that healthcare costs are too high or that teachers are leaving the profession. And what she's trying to say is that the other party, that other state senator who sent out that fundraising email, she is trying to divide us. And she is trying to target people for the purpose of political gain and to distract from the problems that everyone in this country wants to solve. They are the ones obsessed with sex and sexual identity and race and all of these other issues. That is what the Republicans are obsessed with right now. They're obsessed with these culture wars when there are a lot of people in this country who just want to be respected and seen and supported, and then they want a government that's going to fix the fucking problems in this country that people really care about. And they have, you know, Heather and Anat and all those people have found through a lot of research that that mess Message, calling out the bullshit, calling out their divisions, calling out their intentions and then talking about a lot of the economic challenges that all of us face is actually the most persuasive not just for our own base but for a lot of voters in the middle.
2: What I think is at the core of the race class narrative and at sort of the the appeal of this speech is that it takes an issue where Republicans are trying to divide us and uses it as a way to unify people, to bring people together, to demonstrate what that the broader viewpoint is what is within the American values or family values is to define them broadly in a way that is appealing to lots of people. And I think the political opportunity here, and this connects to Republicans fighting over a tax break for Disney, whether – you know, and frankly, I have no idea whether Disney should have a tax break. Our policies are generally overly favorable to corporations anyway. But they're, the fact that they're focusing on Disney and the private lives of Pluto and Mickey or whatever else you want to do is – evidence that they are focused on everything other than the things you care about. They're not right. focused on inflation. They are not focused on the economy. They're not focused on gas prices. They're not focused on health care. They're not focused on the cost of your prescription drugs. Democrats on the overwhelming majority of these issues, Even putting aside even however you poll Florida. But I that is an argument. I know the Florida law is one that we can win if we try to win it. They have chosen unpopular issues that are low priorities. That is a flashing green light to proceed ahead with confidence and aggressive messaging about it, right? All this whole thing about you. Democrats do the culture wars. You know, there's a whole thing in playbook about how this speech is causing Democrats to revisit whether they take on the culture wars. And that conversation is always happening, completely removed from people who actually engage in politics. When your opponent does unpopular things that people do not think are important, you hammer that home. And that is not a choice between inflation and culture wars or gas prices and standing up for kids and teachers. It's all part of the same thing. And this speech should be a roadmap for people on how to begin to do that.
1: Yeah. And look, this isn't, oftentimes, I think the conversation is too simplistic. And this speech um, appealed to, People within the Democratic Party on all sides of the debates that we've been having. <laughs> people who think Democrats should hit harder, people who think Democrats should have a broader appeal, people who think Democrats should excite the base, right? Like this speech checked all of those boxes, which should show people that it's possible to have an effective and unifying message as a party. Um, because y- you could see that people were almost like annoyed that they were all dis- they were all agreeing with each other on liking this speech, you know like James Carville liked it who who thought that Democrats were you know uh, he was like complaining about woke language, he thought it was a textbook example of a speech we should do. Very liberal and progressive people love this speech. people who thought that democrats aren 't fighting hard enough should li- like this speech, right so it is totally possible to deliver a message that works that unifies the party that excites the base that appeals to a broad group of people and that is effective and i think that um, the state senator showed us that during that speech
2: do you know who do you know who could give that speech and should give that speech
1: joe biden joe biden
2: joe biden i, I mean it's just like i'm not i am not picking no, on joe I mean, biden right. i mean joe biden has a lot of shit on his plate He has limited opportunities to communicate. Every time he goes out there, he rightly has to talk about Ukraine and inflation and all these other things. But as I think about someone who has authentic moral outrage, who has this moral code, who I know is deeply offended by how Republicans are targeting trans kids and gay kids and teachers and everyone else like that. You just know that offends him to his core as a Biden, as he would say. And I I think there will be a moment where that comes out. I hope it's sooner rather than later. But it is like that's exactly what we want to say. And that would be, I think, I think it would get equal levels of praise. It is, you know, Joe Biden has never been the most enthusiastic culture warrior, but he is a very willing and very powerful moral advocate. And this is an opportunity for moral advocacy that I think would have political value.
1: And someone who, like our old boss, does not want to cede the ground of patriotism or religion or, you know, or any of those things to Republicans. Right. Like this is this goes back to shades of Obama's 2004 convention speech when he stood up and decided that, like, Republicans weren't going to get to own patriotism, that he was going to talk about why he loves this country, but that he loves this country for a bunch of reasons that progressives found. Appealing because of our diversity, because, right? And so, like, I do think that, that not ceding the ground to Republicans on a whole bunch of these issues and redefining them as, as, as what progressives deeply believe in is, is key to this whole messaging uh, conversation. Um, so, there was a political story this week that has White House officials saying that even though Biden has been consumed by Ukraine, as you just mentioned, he's about to refocus on the economy and inflation. Uh, we got to pivot. We're working, we're working up to a pivot. Um, and there's also a bunch of advice from Democratic strategists that can sort of be summed up um, by Simon Rosenberg, who's quoted in the in the piece. And he said, Democrats have one overriding political communications priority now. We have to convince voters that things are better because of our time in power. What do you think of that advice?
2: Look, Simon's a very, very smart guy. Um, and he's not wrong that convincing voters that their decision to put Democrats in power has mattered in their lives and that things are better than if Donald Trump and Republicans had stayed in power. I just think that is necessary but insufficient to get where we need to go. People are incredibly frustrated at the economy and that every poll, every focus group shows that is driven by legitimate, real feelings about inflation. Not like we can, we can argue about the media coverage, which has certainly not done a great job of covering the nuances of the economy. You know, there's a Navigator out today, which shows that only three in 10 Americans think the economy has created has created more jobs than it's lost in the last year, which is sort of a searing indictment of the media and just the ecosystem in the United States. But it's hard to tell people things we may think so much better if they don't think things are better. So you have to, yeah. I think, at least explain what you've done. And but that the point of that is not to say, please thank me at the polls in November. It is to say, we did, we said we were going to do th- those things. We did those things. They were good things. And you should use that as a reason to believe us when we say we're going to do these other good things, right? It is proof of what you are going to do, not re- a reason in and of itself to get votes in November. It's not Dems deliver, it's Dems are going to deliver. And you, the reason you know we're going to deliver is because we we did deliver, right? It, it is a little more nuanced and sort of hashtag political advocacy.
1: Again, what's more effective uh, as a message? Your concerns aren't real and you've been duped by the media or I'll fight to lower your costs. My opponent uh, wants to raise them. I mean, it, yeah, <laughs> I just it's really hard. look. People, you know, that that poll that you just mentioned. Yeah. So people's views of how many jobs the economy created are, are off. Um, but there was also the, you know, the Navigator poll also showed this week that a majority of Americans uh, feel concerned about their own financial situation. Yeah. You know, and it's one thing to say, oh, the media didn't quite cover uh, the jobs boom well enough. And so people's perceptions are warped. Totally true. But. You can't tell people that their own views of their own financial situation are wrong and that they have just been duped when that is what they feel when they are looking at prices of things. Um, and I think all you can do there is say, look, these fucking, again, Rick Scott wants to raise taxes on 100 million people and take your health care away. That's their plan. We have a different plan. You put you, you elect more Democrats. You give us a bigger majority. We're going to lower your costs on, on health care, on prescription drugs, on energy, across a whole bunch of issues.
2: The reason why I think this is hard is, you know, Biden's been out. He's done a bunch of events on things the bipartisan infrastructure deal has delivered. But what, what the reason that is hard, and I think we, ha- I have been very excited to see the Biden White House more aggressively start drawing contrasts with Republicans over the Rick Scott tax plan. is some. I was sort of struck by something Ezra Klein said in this really great interview he did with our friends, Not Shank Rosario and Sean McElwee on his pod. And in general, we don't recommend non-crooked media pods on this pod, but we will in this case because I think it was an excellent conversation. But Ezra mm-hmm. said, you can only make politics about the issues and controversies that unleash enough energy to capture public attention. And right. that is how that is a thing, thing that should be imprinted on the brains of every person who works in politics, which is, you know, you see this in that Navigator poll. Everyone loves the Biden economic agenda, except the problem is the Biden economic agenda, because it is not in danger of becoming a law anytime soon, is not something that is going to capture public attention. So you have to frame it in a way to capture public attention. The way you do that is with conflict. And I actually think that that brings us back to the that speech we were just talking about, because yep. you- what is capturing public attention right now are these culture wars. You have to connect those culture wars to the things you want to talk about, the things that you want to do and the things Republicans want to do that people don't like. And so it is combining all of those things and you have you have to work from what is getting attention and you're not just going to be a go around and just saying something is different than having people hear things.
1: Right. If if uh, Mallory McMorrow got up there and started yelling about how the roads haven't been fixed and and healthcare costs are too high and teasers are leaving and she didn't mention any of this, uh, none of us would know that that speech happened who weren't in the room at the time. <laughs> Even though that would have been a very popular message um, should it have been polled. Voters would say, yes, I'm very glad that she said that. I find that very popular. But we live in a world where you have to break through with your message through a very fractured media environment. And the only way to do that is to... Uh, hit your wagon to some of the culture war <laughs> debates that are happening right now. And by the way, it's good to stand up for uh, children, you know, uh, and, and, and make sure that uh, children are heard and seen and supported and not targeted and marginalized, which is what she said. Um, OK, when we come back, I will talk to Dr. Bob Wachter about where we are in the pandemic.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash PSA. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash PSA. This week, a Trump-appointed federal judge
1: in Florida struck down the federal mask requirement on planes, trains, buses, and other forms of transportation. And while the Biden administration has announced that they will appeal the ruling— the mandate is currently gone and may not come back. Here to talk to us about how to think about assessing our risk and our pandemic response going forward, the chair of UC San Francisco's Department of Medicine, Dr. Bob Wachter. Dr. Wachter, welcome back to the pod. It's a great pleasure to be here, John. Thank you. So the DOJ is appealing the ruling uh, because the CDC clearly wants the authority to protect people during a public health emergency, which it seems obvious to me that they should have, I know I know you agree but the CDC was also about to reassess whether the mask mandate was still necessary in a few weeks anyway. Um, Under what conditions do you think it would be appropriate for the CDC to drop the mandate?
3: Yeah, I think it's a tough call. First of all, absolutely. I think the idea that a judge could take away the authority of a a federal agency to enact a mandate in the middle of a public health crisis is, is really dangerous dangerous for the next pandemic for a a bad variant so i'm glad that they're appealing it in terms of what the cdc should do or what's the right call i think we've gotten to a point where it's a closer call than it was six months ago in part because individuals have so many tools at their disposal to keep themselves safe so i think the reason they kicked the can down the road till may 3rd was to see what's happening with this mini surge and i think the answer is we're seeing an uptick in cases but not seeing an uptick in hospitalizations and so I think it's a reasonable decision to pull back the mandate. Certainly a lot of the public does not want a mandate. And I think individuals for the most part can keep themselves pretty safe on public transit.
1: Yeah, so that's that's sort of the, the public policy on this. Let's talk about our individual risk. Like I've seen some experts say that, you know, it's less risky to go maskless on a plane than it is in a crowded restaurant, especially, you know, when the plane is in the air because the ventilation is actually quite good. Um, what are your thoughts on that individual risk assessment on a plane?
3: Yeah. I mean, to make a decision about whether to wear a mask on a plane requires that you multiply about 22 fractions times each other. And we should have all listened in fourth grade. And when they tried to teach us how to do that, it's really hard. I mean, to me, here's my general rule. My general rule is that I'm now comfortable not wearing a mask in indoor spaces if I'm with a group of people who I know to be fully vaccinated and I know would not be there if they felt sick. uh, And it's worth it not to wear a mask. So eating dinner with friends or family, there's no way that I figured out how to eat dinner without taking the mask off. To me, that's worth it. It's worth a risk. If I got COVID from that, I'd be pissed. But I would say, all right, that was a reasonable decision to be in a closed tube for six hours with 150 strangers, whose vaccination status you don't know, um, and keep your mask off, I think is riskier than I want to be. So, you know, compared to an aluminum tube where you're sitting shoulder to shoulder, With 150 people a plane is safer than another version of that that didn't have such good ventilation and filtration but i think it's important to people get a little magical about this and say the plane is perfectly safe because Mm. it's got such good ventilation it doesn't it's not perfectly safe there have been plenty of cases of transmission on planes so to me with the amount of covid in the environment in a flight with 150 people on it there's a pretty good chance that someone on the plane has covid maybe they're the person sitting next to you I don't particularly wanna talk to the people next to me, maybe I'm antisocial, so (laughs) I prefer keeping my mask on during the flight. I'll take it off for a minute or two to eat something or chug a drink, Um, but that's my general take on it, that I think it's reasonable to not have a mandate and, and force everyone to do it, but for an individual, I think the risk is high enough that it's worth still being safe in closed indoor spaces with people whose vaccination status you don't know.
1: Now, say you're someone who's decided, okay, I'm definitely going to wear a mask on a plane still, uh, and I want to wear a well-fitting k n ninety five or n ninety five on the plane. Now, you're a little extra nervous because the mask mandate has dropped, and there's a bunch of people who aren't wearing masks on that plane. like how how worried should you be? Because part of me thinks, look, before when the mask mandate was still in effect, it wasn't a, it was a mask mandate that like cloth masks counted, which we know now with Omicron aren't all that protective. People were taking their masks down eating for, you know, an hour at a time here and there. So if you can one way masking with a well-fitted KN95 or 95 still keep you pretty protected on a plane if a lot of other people aren't wearing masks?
3: Absolutely. And part of the reason I know that is I'll go into the hospital to take care of a patient who I know has COVID. Not not like on an airplane where the person might have COVID. I know they have COVID. I wear a well-fitting N95, and the number of cases of transmission from infected patients to healthcare providers is really quite small. Hmm. When we saw a lot of it early in the pandemic, it was before there was testing. It was when hospitals were chaotic, but it doesn't happen very much. If 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 you are fully vaccinated and boosted, and you are wearing a well-fitting N95 or equivalent. I think you're safe, and I I agree with you completely that it's not like it was perfect, everyone was masking perfectly, you know, two days ago, and now they're not. Right. Uh, You know, uh, I mean, people seem to have this ability to eat and drink for six hours at a time. It's really (laughs) impressive. So, I mean, I, I, I sort of went on to the plane knowing that it's safer than it would be because most of the people are wearing masks. But many of them are wearing crummy masks. Many of them are not wearing them well. Yeah. They're eating, they're drinking. So I think it's, it's, it's not exactly right that it went from incredibly safe to incredibly unsafe over the course of a day.
1: Yeah. I, I sometimes worry that we spend a lot of time and energy talking and arguing about masks when by far the most effective mitigations uh, against Omicron, especially are boosters and treatments like Paxlovid, um, which not everyone has knowledge about or easy access to. What do you think?
3: Well, I think it's an and rather than an or. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't like the duality that some people are, are are pushing, which is like, vaccines are more important than masks. I think that's right. I think everybody should get vaccinated and should get boosted. I do think that wearing a mask in a risky space on top of it is reasonable. And we don't really talk about, you know, you should use either an airbag or seatbelts. We say that the combo is better than either one alone. Yeah. And yeah. so I think the most important thing by far is that you are vaccinated and boosted. Certainly the first booster is a no-brainer. The second booster is a little bit closer of a call. I got mine. I think it's reasonable to to get if you're eligible. I think it's reasonable to wait as well if you're at very low risk. Uh, Paxlovid is really, really effective. So it's another tool that if you do happen to get COVID, if you can get access to Paxlovid, it lowers your chance of a bad outcome by 90%. So it's the combo of all of these layers of protection that really is why, the, why COVID is no longer nearly as great a threat as it was uh, as it was a year ago. But yeah, at a public policy level, if you could only push one thing, you would push vaccination and boosts. But I don't think you know we can walk and chew gum. We can push that, we can push packs of it, but also tell people, particularly if you're at high risk, it is reasonable to wear a mask in situations that are risky.
1: So just zooming out on where we are in the pandemic right now, um... It seems like about half the country was infected with BA1. BA2 is even more transmissible, is now driving case increases among the people who didn't get BA1. I noticed yesterday that we get now BA4 and BA5 are even more transmissible than BA2, and they're starting to drive case increases in South Africa, which means that, you know, weeks from now, they'll eventually be here too. You got places like China instituting inhumane lockdowns that that still aren't preventing an Omicron surge there. Like... It does seem like this thing is going to keep spreading and keep becoming more transmissible until it finds every last person. Like, how how, do you agree with that? And then if so, how should that inform our behavior and our public policy?
3: Yeah, I don't agree that it's gonna find all of us. I'm, you know, I, I'm i two years into it. I haven't gotten COVID, I don't think. And I'd like to keep it that way. And I'm gonna do my darndest to keep it that way within reason, I'm yeah. traveling freely, I'm having dinner with friends, but I still am trying to be careful in risky situations. So uh, I, you know, the, the the picture you just painted is pretty depressing, but probably not that far off. And the thing that might be the most depressing is, prior surges, let's say there's a new variant that is more transmissible and we're seeing an uptick in cases, prior surges then led to a reaction on the part of policymakers and individuals. It's like, oh man, it's it's coming, it's getting bad. I am going to be careful again, or I'm gonna get that booster. It's pretty clear now that for many people, they are quote over it. And that's really dangerous because it means they will not, even if you say it's okay to begin letting your guard down now, because the case loads are lower and hospitals are not overwhelmed you know part of our protection is that we'll act rationally if things start going going sour mm-hmm. and and that's my worry that's my biggest worry actually that people will be complacent will just be tired of everything they're fatigued that's understandable nobody wants to wear a mask but we will not react appropriately if we start seeing a significant uptick in in cases and you know i had a reporter ask me the other day like when are we going to stop talking about this? And I said, when you stop calling me. It's like, I mean, it is going to be a thing for the foreseeable future. We, you know, I think we have gotten to the stage where it's no longer the first item on the news every day. People are yeah. beginning to want to get on with their lives. That's understandable. But yeah, I do think we're going to have this sort of rolling set of threats that, that come through. And uh, we're going to have to learn to live with a version of this. This may be about as good as it gets the way we are now for the foreseeable future, which is a pretty terrible thing to think but it's a hell of a lot better than it was a year ago.
1: Right. And I and I do think even if not everyone gets infected it does seem like most people will get exposed and and it seems like the most important thing is if 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 you're going to get exposed to covid you want to do so where you are vaccinated up to date on all your boosters you make sure you have access to treatment if you need it um and it does seem like that message because you know we're so far behind on boosters in this country hasn't been getting through like what what do you think the federal government should be doing right now that they're not currently doing
3: i think they're doing a pretty darn good job you know it's confusing it's people are tired the partisanship is is really problematic I think getting figuring out is there a better booster out there mm. is really important because the, the the latest studies of the second booster, which showed that two months after it, it was no longer working to prevent symptomatic infection, that's pretty disheartening. So it it, it does seem like Omicron has figured out its way at least partly around our vaccines. We got to come up with better ones. There's a lot of research going into it. Paxlovid, or maybe even a better version of Paxlovid, is really important. So making it as freely available as possible to people and getting the word out. I mean, there are a lot of doctors that don't really understand it and aren't using it well. I mean, it's a miracle drug. It lowers your probability of getting super sick and dying by 90%, including in immunosuppressed people. So that's really important. I think the messaging on masking has to be better. Even if you don't have to, here's why you should in these kinds of settings. And giving people permission to say, and here's why it's reasonable not to in these kinds of settings. It's not like we're being doctrinaire, and you need to act like it's March 2020. I think all of those are are really important. And unfortunately, it's not one thing. It's sort of. And then you know, then thinking about this in terms of the long haul, what is our system to monitor variants to know that things are getting worse when there's so much home testing, you can't really trust the case counts. That's important. Ventilation is important. There's a lot to do here, uh, but I, I think the administration has handled things really well given the complexity of, of of you know all of the variables and all of the moving targets and the minute you think you have a handle on it there's a new variant and, and a new curveball it's pretty tricky
1: yeah uh, so last question just um, maybe your best guess on timelines for a couple uh important developments that we need here one you mentioned omicron specific boosters do you think maybe by the fall they'll be ready with those or
3: Yeah, there was a study, or at least Moderna released some early results the other day of a rejiggered booster uh that was a mix of the original and 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 targeting a part of omicron and it seemed to work better than the the original uh the original vaccines and that's the first time they've been playing around with rejiggered vaccines for months makes all the sense in the world that they'd be able to come up with something better and more targeted none of them seem to work better than the original so this does seem to work better my guess is if you you know i just got my second boost two weeks ago when it's time for my third boost my guess which will probably be the summer or fall my guess is i'll be getting a different vaccine than the one i got uh, two weeks ago
1: uh vaccines for kids under five i have a 21 month old been been, yeah. been really waiting for this one uh what do you think by the summer <laughs> like daddy i
3: want my vaccine <laughs> yeah right <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean they keep pushing back the timeline i think they're working on it really really hard you got to get it right i mean you got to get the dose right so it's not too high and causes fever in all the kids, which is a problem, obviously not too low, which was what happened when on the first test. It seems like they're closing in on it. It seems like summer is a reasonable timeline for that.
1: And then the last one, I know a lot of people are concerned about this long COVID treatments or or even just studies about how much vaccines reduce your risk of long COVID in the Omicron era.
3: Yeah, I mean, the problem with long COVID is almost by definition, you have to wait a while Mm -hmm. to see what happens and study it. I now think about long COVID in a, two different buckets. And this is a diff- different than I would have said two months ago. I now think about what are the chances that I'm going to feel crummy three months after I got my infection? Mm-hmm. And I think the best studies say that is somewhere between 10 and 40% of people will still feel, have a symptom, brain fog, fatigue, something a few months out. And that that risk is lowered by about half with vaccination, not to zero. So still five or 10%. The second bucket for long COVID, which I didn't worry about that much two months ago, is in the last month there have been four studies that looked at the one year outcome of people who got COVID. And when you compare them to people who didn't have COVID, the rate of heart attacks, the rate of strokes, the rate of blood clots, the rate of diabetes were all higher. So there may be, now this was pre-Omicron, because we don't know the, what the one-year outcome of Omicron is because it hasn't been around for a year. So maybe Omicron will be more benign. Maybe Omicron and a vaccinated person will be more benign. But I think, at least for me, part people say, why are you so wimpy about getting COVID? Don't you know it's, quote, just like a cold? First of all, it's not just like a cold in a lot of people. Second of all, I really don't want to get long COVID. That seems pretty unpleasant. Third of all, I really cannot say with any degree of security that there is not an increased risk, maybe comparable to being a smoker or having high blood pressure, of having some bad long-term outcomes, increasing my chance of a heart attack or a stroke or diabetes. Until we know that for sure, I think you have to respect this virus, even if we've gotten to the point that we're not as worried that you're going to get super sick and die the way we were a year ago. More research, I mean, they're putting a lot of money into it. I think we will learn more and more of it about it as it goes along. It's a great reason to be vaccinated. Not only it lowers the probability of long COVID, but probably more importantly, it lowers the probability you get COVID. Yeah. You can't get long COVID if you didn't get COVID. Right. So we need to know more about it. At this point, there really is no proven treatment for people with long COVID. There are long COVID clinics that are trying a whole variety of things, and I think they're you know it's almost sort of experimenting on each one, trying stuff to see whether it works. But that is what I now am afraid of from a COVID infection, much more than uh, than getting very sick and dying of the acute infection.
1: Dr. Wachter, always appreciate your analysis and advice. Uh, I know you got a standing O at Love It or Leave It in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. <laughs> w- will we see you at the, uh, the Pod Save America show in Oakland in, uh,
3: in, in June? I would love to be there. That would be great if I'm gonna get another standing O. My wife was sitting there like, oh my God, uh, people actually pay attention to you. <laughs> that's what, that, that's how, if that's how
1: we get you there, that's how we get you there. We'll, uh, we'll promise the standing O. <laughs> love to. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, great Dr. Wachter, take care. Our chief take officer, Elijah Cohn, is back for one more round of take appreciators. All right. Look at this. Elijah. Nice hat, man. I, you go to one Red Sox game. That's this is that's all it took?
4: Yeah, well, I had a great time. Red Sox are a historical organization. And uh I'm staunchly an anti-Nets guy, so I'm going for the Celtics right now.
1: How are your have your feelings about uh Tom Brady changed at all? No. God
4: no, <laughs> Guys, great to be back. Welcome to the Take Appreciators. I'm going to run through some takes that have come to you fresh out of the content industrial complex. The producers have seen these takes. John and Dan have not. They'll give the reactions, then rate them on a scale of one to four politicos, with four politicos being the worst. Thanks to John Apatow for pointing out that we never established what is the wrong end of that scale uh, in this setup. So, John and Dan, are you ready?
1: I'm ready as I'll ever be.
4: I've never been more ready for something so important. All right, uh, John, as you noted at the beginning of the show, we're going to start with Jen Saki and Peter Ducey. We want to do this, this segment today because uh, Jen Saki was on for our DC live show last week, and that appearance generated some takes. In case you missed it, y'all asked if Peter Ducey was actually a stupid son of a bitch. Uh, Jen said he works for Fox, and they give questions that might make anyone sound like a stupid son of a bitch. And from that quote, discourse was born. So... <laughs> There's a tweet. Fox is the only cable news network Jen Psaki hasn't negotiated a fat check with to go work for. How is language like this towards Peter Ducey, quote, respecting everyone and healing the soul of America? This is no better than the Trump administration and how they treated the press. And it's gross. Whew. Any guesses for
1: who said that? Yeah, I believe that is um, X View co-host Megan McCain.
2: Very good. That's correct. <laughs> I will say that Megan McCain is my go-to always intake appreciator. If there is a dumb take that I cannot figure out who could possibly be, I feel like that's the safest bet. It's like always uh, usually,
1: for me. It's Hugh Hewitt. He is always a safe, safe place to land. Does Hugh Hewitt still exist? I don't know. I stopped. I, I muted him at one point because he, I. Was fighting with him too much I was online, gonna and say. I realized that that was a stupid fucking thing for me to do. So now Hugh Hewitt doesn't exist to me. I mean, <laughs> that's what that's what the mute button is. People, you just mute them, and they're gone forever. Do so You know what the journalistic
2: version <laughs> of the mute button is? The What's Washington that? Post op-ed page. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm going to be in so much trouble for that. There are really good I'm people know. who work there. Stop if you write it. good Stop stuff, you won't it. be muted. Perry Bacon, we love you.
1: Oh yeah, yo, Perry's great. Perry's great. Um, anyway. I just want to say something about the the Saki-Ducey thing. Like, I can't believe how many takes there have been on this and how much that broke through. Like, I got home from the road, saw a bunch of family and friends, you know, had been talking about the news for a week on the road during these shows. The only thing that broke through to people, who they were like, oh, wait, wasn't that your show with the Jen Saki?" got in trouble for what you say with Peter Ducey? By the way, like... First of all, this is all Dan's fault for setting up Jen with that question. Um, But then, Jen... Goes out of her way after she makes that comment to say, like, I know that I this might not be popular with this crowd and I might get booed here, but Peter Ducey. And then she tells this wonderful story about Peter Ducey and how he showed grace when Joe Biden called him a stupid son of a bitch and how he's nice and really went out of a limb there with our with our liberal crowd at the Pots Save America show and did not get any credit for that. Did not get any credit for that. Just got a bunch of shit and bad faith takes from people like Meghan McCain.
2: My my takeaway from this is my new saying, uh, riffing off of Ezra here, which is you can only make podcasts about the issues and controversies that at least enough energy to capture public attention. And that is obviously Peter Newsey. <laughs> so that's coming yeah. back again.
1: I'm only giving Meghan McCain uh, two politicos here because I don't think she was actually trying to troll. I think she was just Lazily reading through Twitter, not even looking at the, the the real context, and just you know decided to get outraged for no good reason. So I don't even think she was trying to in that hard on that one.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna give her one political. I don't think Megan McCain has ever tried to troll intentionally once in her life. Mm. I just think her natural state of being is unself-aware trolling, and so this is just another example of that. So you don't yeah. get a lot of Resting- credit for
1: me. Resting, resting troll, troll. face, resting, resting troll commentary. I was say resting troll feed. Resting yeah, troll, troll feed, that's what you. I would do. done, it,
4: yes. <laughs> yeah, really bad takes, but always in good faith. <laughs> uh, do you guys have any other takes you want to get out on Saki? I know we branded this one as a Saki-only segment, but we're just doing one before we move on to some other let's stuff. Let's
1: move on, let's move on. Yeah. Okay, great.
4: Well, this is a first for Take Appreciators. It's a Chiron. And I know you're Ooh. thinking, like, a Chiron? Like, come on, just trust me on it. Uh, This is very related to uh, the A-block where we talked about the culture war. Uh, Here's the Chiron. Ron DeSantis nets more wins as he energizes the right with his anti-woke pro-freedom strategy ahead of 2024. Any guesses to what network aired this Chiron? CNN Plus.
1: (laughs) 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 We will never know. (laughs) R I P Quibi R I P CNN Plus R. <laughs> <laughs> Not easy to start a media company, is it?
2: <laughs> me,
4: on? Me on I mean,
1: win. it has to be Fox uh, or or uh, or OAN or or Newsmax because if it is a if it's some if it's a mainstream outlet, then. Oof.
4: If it uh, was on Fox or Newsmax, it wouldn't be in this segment. But that is straight up <laughs> CNN right there
1: what <laughs>
2: cnn minus <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man CNN classic oh. who where, i need to speak to the i need to speak to the manager on that, that who the fuck let that happen what
2: show was that on
1: shame shame cnn there should be more shame to that Chiron, than cnn plus
2: unlike cnn plus that Chiron will live forever <laughs> they aired the podium
4: in 2015 it feels like we're going back to that oh man
2: yeah that's, that's
1: bad. bad notches more wins what what is he winning you know what? That's that's. I'm giving that a full playbook. That gets four. Four politicos. It gets a full playbook.
2: I'm going to give it three. Just I'm going to leave some room for growth here.
4: All right. This is going to need some background because it's about the libs of TikTok Twitter account and that whole story that's going on oh
1: right boy. now. Oh, so boy.
4: Oh, boy. Buckle up. For all you normal people out there who have puffed grass <laughs> in the last month, Libs of TikTok is a conservative social media account that takes fringe points of view and feeds them into shows like Tucker Carlson for them to air montages. A Washington Post story this week revealed that it was run by a January 6th attendee because, of course, it is. And then that Washington Post article got a lot of bad faith backlash from conservatives. Are you guys with me so far? Need me to explain any of that again? I think again? I
1: got it. I think, I, yeah, I'm following the string.
4: Yeah, I got it. Okay. Now, here, there's so many bad takes about this account and then this, the story about who's behind the account, but this one's special. Uh, it's from Real Clear Politics, and the title of the article is The New Class Chasm in the Culture Wars. This piece argues that the Washington Post and other liberals refuse to engage with the actual content being posted on libs of TikTok, which I suppose is an interesting point if you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> that leads us to this quote. Like so many of our culture wars, this one is about class and the class chasm separating politicians and pundits and journalists from average Americans. It's that class chasm that's really being obscured in the erasure of the videos from lives of TikTok.
1: What what does class have to do with this at all?
2: Yeah, I don't even I don't even understand that take.
1: I'm confused by it. That's yeah, it's I'm so that is a really dumb fucking take. One, one Politico. Yeah, it seems one really politico. stupid.
2: I was, tr- <laughs> I was,
1: I was waiting for some kind of like Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, we're the party of working people uh, against the elite libs kind of thing. But they didn't even try to make that argument. Lazy. Try better.
2: I was trying to find while we were going through that terrible take what I thought was a good take about this because you know the big fight over this is that Taylor Lorenz identified the person behind it. And she was accused of doxing them. And she had a tweet that <laughs> said that there was a time when entire cities would get doxed in one book at a time. And there was a number that you could call to dox anyone you asked for. But as evident, It was called
1: the dox pages. The dox, dox pages. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but as evidence that Matt Iglesias needs to listen to offline more than anyone I have ever met, I am like 700 <laughs> tweets through his feed, and I haven't gotten to his tweet from yesterday about this. Yeah, I no, was like scrolling no. and scrolling and scrolling. I look down, and the next tweet I see is one hour ago. <laughs> so
1: it's like, yeah, no, that's a, it's, it's a log off. They'll yeah. definitely log off.
2: It was a great tweet, though.
1: Great tweet, great tweet. Yeah, no, there are there used to be phone books you could really look up people in them and get their whole addresses.
4: Yeah, I mean, the discourse on this whole thing has been just mind-numbing and terrible. And I'm sincerely jealous of you if you're listening to the show being like, what is any of these words?
2: (laughs) Were you living in blissful ignorance of something stupid? Well, let us change that. Thanks for joining us on Pod Save America.
1: I'm going to admit something that doesn't speak well of me and is very not uh, offline because this, this whole story that Taylor wrote is like right in my wheelhouse and it's been a busy week and I haven't even got to read the whole story yet. I haven't gotten to read this. I've read, I've read, I've done the thing that I hate, which is I've seen so many takes on the story without reading the story itself. Always a bad thing to do.
2: Do you want to use this as an opportunity to push your excellent interview with Taylor Lorenz on offline?
1: I have an excellent interview with Taylor Lorenz on offline, which is a podcast you should check out. Um, that, I, that that comes out every Sunday, so go check it out if you're still listening to this podcast.
2: <laughs> and if you are, you definitely need to listen to that other podcast.
1: Thank you, Chief Take Officer Elijah Cohn. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bob Walker, for walking us through the latest on COVID. And thanks everyone for listening. Hope you all have a great weekend. And uh, go go read that great uh, Taylor Lorenz story in the Washington Post, and then uh, and then listen to on offline. And then maybe take a walk outside. Then take a walk. <laughs> Don't That's scroll fast. through Matt
2: Iglesias' tweets. Don't <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Bye, everyone.
1: Bye, everyone. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.